I told Kirsten last night that this gathering on the patio and getting all bundled up reminds me of fireworks on 4th of July. We're all just here, watching the sky. <laughs> Very dear. Feels like there's not much add, much to add with the bird song and the wind that they could give the Dharma talk tonight. We can just pause even as we're getting settled in, just listening. Ajahn Chah, the great Thai forest master, says this. Don't hold on to any of this. But contemplate clearly. And your grasping will gradually be exhausted. The mind of a true practitioner is like still water that flows. Or flowing water that's still. The mind of a true practitioner is like still water that flows or flowing water that's still. So what does that mean? Don't hold on to any of this. Contemplate clearly and the mind that grasps this grasping will gradually be exhausted. Najin Shah often talked about the one who knows. And the one who knows is still, but can know the flow of water, can know the bird song, can know the grasping. And there's a stillness right in the center of it. Stillness in movement, movement in the stillness. And this is really what we've been doing all day, isn't it? We've been hearing sounds and tracing the movement of the breath and the body and feeling the impermanence of sensations as they arise and pass away. We've been with this flow, this unfolding of experience. And we might have moments of stillness in that. We might have had a kind of knowing, a little pause. Often we like that pause. That's what we're looking for. Just get the mind to stop. And then movement. But can we know that which knows is already still? This is a befriending of experience, a befriending of impermanence. And tonight I want to share some reflections and thoughts on Anicca, this way of seeing that notices change. 
the change that's in us, around us, everywhere. And how the grasping is a kind of illusion of permanency. We think there's something constant here. But when we sit down and we really start to listen deeply, we see it's all shaking, it's all changing. Isn't it? Have you seen that? Right? This saying that if we hold tight to the rope that's always moving, we're going to get a lot of rope burn. And that's what we do. Right? We fixate on that which is changing and moving. When we can hold it an open palm, a kind of stillness in the movement, there's less friction. Right? The grasping gradually ceases. And so we're training these different ways of seeing. Today we've been inclining towards impermanence. And it's one of these three characteristics we might hear a lot about in Buddhism. First characteristic of anicca, impermanence. The second one is dukkha, or unreliability. Stress, that sense that we can't really control our experience is always a little unsatisfying. And the third characteristic is anatta, which you'll hear about more later in the coming days. But these three characteristics, they're ways of seeing that liberate the mind. When we come into alignment with an open palm, can hold these characteristics in their truth, the truth of things. There's a deep peace that comes. We're not fighting reality so much. We're more in alignment with these ways of seeing that liberate. And so, of course, we have all these different practices that we're introducing. We have all these tools. We watch the breath. We listen to sounds. We feel the body. We're going to work more with emotions and thoughts. We have the walking back and forth. We have the meandering, the moseying. We have it just going for a walk. There's all these tools, all these objects. And the more that we practice, the more we see it doesn't matter. Any object is a good object for meditation. The heart, the mind, the body, the world, all nature, all a good object. And more and more we start to turn not towards the objects themselves, but their characteristics. So we're looking at how is this object, whatever it is, sound, trees, body, thoughts, how is it changing? We see that characteristic more and more clearly. So it's a particular way of allowing wisdom to grow. In Mark Bloom's translation of the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, the Buddha says, world honored one. Just as among the footprints of all living beings, there is nothing that surpasses the footprint of an elephant, so too is the concept of impermanence paramount among all concepts. So I grew up in Southern Oregon, in the Valley of the Rogue River. And my father, uh, he was older when I was born. He was 50. That was kind of his second life. 
And as I was growing up, he became an avid river rafter. He had a whole crew of friends who they all had their equipment. And I remember I was maybe six the first time he took me down the road. And it's like a four or five day trip. And he had his boat. We, made, we named the boat Merlin. <laughs> going down the river in Merlin. My dad's at the oars. And it's a whole, it's a whole thing, right? You prepare ahead of time, packing your food, and you carry all your gear in the rafts. And there was families that went, so I would always be a passenger in my dad's boat when I was growing up. And then there's paddle raft, and folks in kayaks, and catamarans, and all, all kinds of different, like a flotilla going down the river. And some of my favorite memories are from being on the river with my dad. And he would always, he's like a, uh, it's like his, you know, his particular sense or language is reading the water. And he would always tell me what he was doing to teach me the flow and the way the currents move. If you follow the bubbles, that's where the current is going down the water. And then there's these eddies, these ways the currents peel off to the sides. You don't want to get stuck in an eddy because it's hard to get the raft out in an eddy. And you have to anticipate so often what's coming next. You're not just where you are, but you're reading the river. Okay, this rapid is coming. How can I tell where I want to go? Well, there's a tongue, this uh, narrowing of the water in a slick place, a still place, usually at the head of the rapids, where it shows safety. Right? It shows, oh, if I can align my raft in this particular current, this slick tongue, it'll be easier to navigate, right? Get the, you get the bow just lined up. It avoids the big holes in the rocks on either side. You get a good wave chain going down the tongue. So early on, young, I learned this kind of language and the beauty that the water, it's like the Dharma the water's teaching us. And knowing the stillness ahead of the rapid, the movement and the stillness, and the mind that gets very worked up. It's all frothy, right? You see big rocks ahead, there's big waves and splashing, and you don't quite know what's going to come. How to work with a mind that's anticipating, that might be really scared, actually. And then this moment of just like, okay, here we are, we're in the current. No more pausing, no more preparing, we just have to go. Right? And the mind that releases as it's just going through, navigating, and learning how to put the oar in just at the right time, just the right angle of the boat. To me, this is exactly what we're doing in practice. We're learning to read the Dharma, the flow of things, the change, to be in alignment with it, to feel the stillness and the movement. Yeah, the river is our teacher. The river, you know, keeps going. Our minds, I've heard so many of you talk over the last couple of days about how we can't stop the thoughts. Right? Just sitting, there's rumination, there's so much distraction, and really trying all the techniques, and trying to get peaceful, and not working so well. But the river doesn't judge the flat places and the rapids, right? This is the mind. The mind is moving. There's rapids in the mind. There's currents and eddies and flows. And rather than trying to redirect the river, 
or push the river, fight the river upstream. We're learning to be with it, to understand, oh, how do I read these thought patterns? What's the skillful position? What's the skillful stance? So we can navigate this rapid, this particular story, this worry, this emotion. When we trust that they're impermanent, we're coming more into alignment with the mind's nature. And it's not about stopping anything. So many instances in the suttas talk about the power of this seeing impermanence, seeing arising and passing away. And I love this in the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta, the very first talk, the first Dharma talk the Buddha gave. I like to think they were probably under a tree like this one. Is in Deer Park, lots of deer around. And he was teaching his friends, he was explaining what he under, had understood under the Bodhi tree. And it's such a beautiful teaching, he goes through the Four Noble Truths, but at the end there's this big moment where he's talking about change. And the, in the Pali, there's this exclamation that Kondanya, who is one of his friends, his students, Kondanya understands. Kodanya understands. He sees the arising and passing away of things, and he's free. And in the Pali, I've heard from my teacher, Gil Fransdahl, that it's like this big exclamation. Like, can you imagine, you know, when you see something really amazing, and you see a beautiful sunset or the ocean a particular day, and you just go, wow, wow, so wondrous. So Kodanya's like that, like, Wow, I see, I see, Kundanya understands. And that sets the wheel of Dhamma in motion. This passing of one uh, person's understanding to another person's mind. It's so magic, isn't it, that we learn from the wise words of another and then our mind gets it. And this is how the Dhamma is passed on in a flow from warm hand to warm hand. So seeing impermanence can have that kind of mind-blowing experience. It's so ordinary. It's so normal. Of course things change. We see the seasons changing. We see the days passing. Why are we spending so much time talking about change? But it has so much power when we start to see on another level how much that's true. Everything is in constant flux. And something happens in the mind. It breaks the dream. Because so often we're welded to this dream state. We think we are constant and impermanent watching a river flow. We don't understand we are the river. And when the mind sees in that way, everything changes. Sometimes when we see in this way, like Kondanya, we have that moment of amazement, of wonder, and we have a freedom that comes. Other times, when we see impermanence in deeper levels, a lot of fear can get kicked up. And maybe some of you have had this. Maybe you're seeing other facets of change or experiencing it in a deep way. This can happen when we get a diagnosis. So many of us have experienced loss in the last years. It can be when we're sitting and we have an experience of like nothing to grasp. 
can't hold on to any of it and trying so hard. We're really encountering a kind of resistance and a deep kind of um, like an existential fear that comes in the face of the truth. It's helpful if the birds are singing. <laughs> that helps with some of the fear. But what I really want to say is that nature retreat, well, any retreat, but being in nature in particular is so courageous. Isn't it? We're willing to be the will of the elements. We don't know what's going to come. We are encountering wilderness, the wilds, in a new way. So we feel that kind of ungovernable quality of our environment. We also feel the wildness, the wilderness of our own minds and hearts. It's crazy in there sometimes. It's wild and wooly and there's all kinds of things happening unexpectedly, unexpected moods. And so in this practice, we're really asked to confront all of the difficult places. Our bodies that hold trauma, our bodies that hold so many emotions that often aren't allowed to be seen or felt in the daily spin of things. Bhante Buddha Kita, a really wonderful monk from Uganda, he loves to say, the issues are in the tissues. (laughs) (laughs) And when we come here, we have these conditions, we're really... It's like asking, but with all those parts to come out and be seen and felt. And they want to, they need to be felt and and held with care. So I've heard some of you speak of the traumas we're holding and all of the griefs and the sorrows. And of course we have all of our strategies to resist this. Right? The mind throws up obstacles. And there's lots of lists about these. And the most famous one in Buddhism is called the, the five nivaranas. In Pali, nivarana is often translated as hindrance. The five hindrances. But I don't love that translation because it is immediately negative, right? The hindrances are bad, they're obstacles, we shouldn't have them. But they're only a problem if we're not aware of them, right? It's just like a dangerous rapid, that if we're not, if we go down backwards, if we're not really aware that we're in the rapid, we could flip the raft. But with a certain kind of poise and care, mindfulness and attention, wise attention, we were hearing about last night, they're not a problem at all. The nivaranas can become objects of our practice. But it's important to know, often we just think we're sleepy and we don't understand, oh, the mind is putting up this defense for a reason. So important to get to know them, just I'll list the five. The the first is sensory desire. The second is aversion or ill will. Third is restlessness and worry. Fourth is sleepiness, dullness. And the fifth one is doubt which is often the most uh, wily, sneaky. 
And these hindrances, you might have noticed if you're used to indoor retreat, these hindrances manifest differently when we're practicing outside. If we had time, I would love to hear from some of you. How is your particular favorite flavor of hindrance coming? Because <laughs> it's different, right? In, in some ways, it might be easier to hold them in the fresh air and the trees. But it's important to sort of know what is our favorite, what's our go-to. When faced with fear or difficulty or some kind of pain or challenge, what do we do? Do we check out? Do we throw up a bunch of doubt and think we're wrong? Do we just get super restless, hypervigilant? So what's our particular favorite Nivarana? Spacing out, going for a cup of tea, whatever it is. Because this is the way that we respond sometimes when we see the truth. So when we're dropping into deeper levels of impermanence, we might resist that, we might space out, we might get very tired. So my favorite is fear. When I start to see truth, a deep like gut-level anxiety kicks in. And as I've worked with this over the years, sort of befriending slowly, slowly this nervous system that's on hyper-alert, I've started to see it. It's really so pervasive. I think part of this is just the condition we live in. There's a pervasive underlying anxiety. We certainly see this, seen this grow during the, during the years of the pandemic. So natural when our our bodies are in danger, we don't quite know if we're going to get sick or not, how it's going to play out. There's underlying fear. There's a kind of collective fear body. We see this in nature too, all the time, right? The experience of the animal realm is very governed by fear. Am I going to be eaten? Am I okay? Moving, you know, sort of quick, kind of rapid, the eye movement, looking around. You watch mice or, you know, squirrels or birds, even the way they're moving, there's a kind of like, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? Right? We see this. It's very biological. So it's a natural response. We have fragile bodies that are, are delicate and vulnerable in the elements in the in the face of the unknown, in the face of impermanence. So important to really know when that anxiety is functioning, to feel its warning signs in the body, and then to know how to befriend it, how to hold it with a lot of compassion and care. We're not practicing to get away from that. We're not judging it, thinking we're wrong, somehow we have an anxiety problem. We're learning how to respond skillfully. One of my favorite words these days is accompaniment. That that anxiety, that fear in the belly is really asking for a kind of hand to hold. Or just a gentle touch, like, okay, I'm here. I'm with you. Not alone. So how do we learn to offer companionship first to ourselves, potentially then to others in the world? This path is one of accompaniment. 
So for a long time in my Dharma practice, I had this dream of going on a three-year retreat. My first teachers were in the Tibetan tradition, and they had just come out of their three-year retreat. And they were all glowy and spoke all, you know, the many stories about their adventures and the internal world in their three-year retreat. You know, it's kind of the gold standard. So for really, for two decades, I tried to figure it out. Like, how do I do this? How do I support myself? How do I have elderly parents? Can't really leave them for three years. And a partner, how do we work this out? And just right before COVID, partner finished his PhD. I ended my particular job where we were. And things just piece by piece fell into place. So that we had this opportunity not to do a traditional gated three-year retreat in a very strict way. But we had a friend and benefactor offer us a place. First it was a temple apartment in town in Ashland, and then it was up in the mountains in the cabin where we've been. And we worked out this way to just be working a tiny bit, two days a month, and then the whole rest of the time we could be offline. So there's a sense, oh, we could do, and we have a llama in Canada who's like, I'm willing to guide you on Zoom. Even with COVID, he's like, I'm going to give you the teachings. I'll walk you through the whole curriculum in this kind of adapted, modern, three-year retreat structure that we created. And so it was so interesting. Right around April 2020, when the whole world was going into quarantine, we did too. And we started this traditional practice structure. Two years in town, and then in November 2021, we uh, we went up. We moved up into the mountains, and there's one called Princess Cabin that I live in. And then my partner down the road had a, a tent and a platform where he was living, canvas tent. And for the first few months, we had so much energy. We had a lot of sambega, this spiritual urgency, like oh, we finally. We finally found these conditions for practice. So secluded, so wild. All this support with a caretaker who's bringing us wood and, and um, you know, bringing us gas for our stove and making sure the mice are not overrunning the cabin. All this time to practice. And we really dove in in a serious way. We were very silent. I was doing the cooking because he was out in his tent, but we would just see each other at lunch, bow in silence. He would take his lunch eat alone, very strict kind of schedule, modifier, and doing these traditional yogic practices in the Tibetan tradition that are meant to work out all your, clean your channels, work out all your stuck places. And four months in, I was like, we're doing amazing. (laughs) This is amazing. I didn't know if I could do it. I didn't know if I could be alone that long. I didn't know if the, you know, all the food and all of the situation was going to work out okay. And we had all this momentum. And right on the night of my birthday, February 5th, did my usual evening practice, everything fine, went to go to bed, and had the most intense panic attack I've ever experienced. I didn't really even know what it was at the time. What I knew was my body was shaking, there was all this electricity coursing through, and my heart was pounding. There's all this like intense energy and heat in the heart, uncontrollable, weird palpitations, and then it would kind of go quiet, and then it would go intense again. 
And I've been doing all this big practice, and so my mind felt very like, didn't know, I didn't know. I did not know what was going on, but I knew there was something very intense in my body. And I thought, is this it? Am I having a heart attack? Am I dying? I just, I didn't know how to respond. There was a kind of, a lot of not knowing this, and a lot of fear. But it wasn't the usual kind of like, I'm afraid that, you know, my parents are going to die, or I'm afraid I'm in danger. It was just existential, visceral, like, terror in the body. And that was also disorienting, because I didn't have a story to it. It was just like the whole body was full of this kind of terror. And so I have this really kind of hardcore edge where I was like, I'm just going to muscle through this. Like, this is what all the hardcore yogis do. They learn how to just feel their body, be aware, right? Mindfulness. I was doing metta, kind of pulling out all the tools in the box. And I was saying to myself, right, I've been practicing for 20 years. This is, this is what it's all about. Just going to like double down, right? And I did all the things. I sat, I lied down, I was walking. The hours were creeping by, and my body was continuing with this. It would kind of subside for a little bit, and then it would continue with the shaking, this electric kind of current running through, and then the heart. And about 1 a.m. in the morning, I had a little respite. Things calmed a little bit. I was doing self-compassion practice. And I had this sense of like, oh, I'm probably going to make it alone here in the night, through the night. And right there in that thought of, like, I'm going to be okay alone, the next thought I had was, and my partner is just out right down the road. I could actually ask for his help. And I felt this dropping into that permission of accompaniment. And I thought, you know what, even though I could do this alone, I'm going to go tell him what's going on. And it was all wintry and freezing cold, and I bundled up in my coat. I did feel some shame, but I was very clear that this was a compassionate thing. And I went and I unzipped his tent, woke him up, he's all in three sleeping bags. And, and I said, I really need your help. And it was such an interesting moment of feeling both a fa- like kind of failure, like we had taken these vows of silence and we were supposed to be alone in this, and also just this deep knowing that I could ask and that he would come and he did and we just sat awake. He was like feeling my body, feeling like the electricity. We didn't, he didn't know what to do either. But just that sense that I kept being like, can you tell? Like, can't you feel it? He's like, yes, I feel it, I know. And just having another person there who could be with me was such a lesson in my own. I didn't know that I could do that, that I could break the rules and and ask for that kind of accompaniment. So this is what I offer to you. You too can break the rules. <laughs> and watch those hard edges that come up and the kind of the muscling through and the doubling down that we do in the face of fear. And then how do we find that kind, that holding, right? That accompaniment, that someone who can sit with us through the night. Even when we feel shame about it, 
and we think we're still wrong. So the other kind of accompaniment that I've learned in this long period of practice is poetry. So this is called Stone by Danusha Lomaris. And what am I doing here in a yurt on the side of a hill at the ragged edge of the tree line, sheltered by conifer and bay, watching the wind lift softly the dry leaves of bamboo. I lie on the floor and let the sun fall across my back as I have been for the past hour, listening to the distant traffic the calls of birds I cannot name. Once, I had so much I wanted to accomplish. And now all I know is that I want to get closer to it, to the rocky slope, the orange petals of the nasturtium adorning the fence, the wind's sudden breath. Close enough that I can almost feel at night the slight pressure of the stars against my skin. Isn't this what the mystics meant when they spoke of forsaking the world? Not to turn our backs to it, only to its elaborate plots, its complicated pleasures, in favor of the pine's long shadow, the slow song of the grass. I'm always forgetting and remembering and forgetting. I want to leave something here in the rough dirt, a twig, a small stone, perhaps this poem, a reminder to begin again by listening carefully with the body's rapt attention. Remember to this, to this. I love that. I want to be close enough to feel the slight pressure of the stars against my skin. And how we just, we have so much to accomplish and we just go, go, go. And we're, we place our worth on our productivity. And isn't it so soothing to be amongst the grasses and the pebbles and the clouds and know, oh, there's a whole other way to be human. And isn't that so much about connection, feeling the world touching us, this kind of accompaniment? That's here, that's here all the time. This oak tree is such a companion. How many yogis has she comforted? <laughs> but it's remembering to see, it's remembering to notice. Oh, it's always here. It's already here. Awareness is so intimate. It's right here. We just forget. So there's a beauty of staying close to our fear, of staying close to all of our neuroses, all of our strategies, the hurt parts. That's what this practice does. We don't push them away. We're not shaming them. We're learning how to hold and include and then get very close to and love them. Because this world with all its complexities and its cruelties and its unsolvable problems, 
it feels like it's just inviting us, it's asking us to fall in love with it again and again. Like it gets so gentle and soft and vulnerable when we can meet it just on its own terms. It's just like this right now. Being in this human body with all of its aches and pains, it's just like this. So this whole part about um, impermanence. Do you want to hear more about impermanence? Yes. Okay, all right, okay. I don't know if I have time, but I'll go into it. So there's three levels of impermanence that we hear about. The first level is being. So being an avid rafter now myself, I was able to go down the, the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon. This is a while ago now, maybe 12, 15 years ago. Went just to seven of us, seven friends down the Colorado. So big there. Oh my gosh, the water. You know, on the road, the big rapid is Blossom Bar, which is a class four. But on the Grand Canyon, it was like class 10 rapids. I remember thinking, like, this is off the charts big. <laughs> Lava Falls, I mean. And the, just the, the grandeur, the scale of the rock. And the blessing of getting to go down the canyon in a boat and see all of the many layers of, of rock and uh, time. It's, it like boggles the mind, it's so vast. How much time it took for this river to carve out the canyon. It's so poetic, the names of the rock. Anybody been down the Grand Canyon? Great, yeah, do you remember the names? There's like all these really kind of mystical, spiritual names like Zoroaster layer, and then Kaibab. Vishnu Schist is a layer in the Grand Canyon. Remember really getting into memorizing all those layers. And just letting the mind try to understand the scale of time in the Grand Canyon. The Buddha spoke of this. He has a discourse on the seven suns. He talked about how planets are born and die, stars coming into being. And he had this great big mind that could encompass these big expanses of time. And so he says in this discourse, all formations are impermanent, of a nature not to last, quickly changing by nature, unreliable by nature. There will be a time when it will not rain. When it does not rain, all the trees, the hundreds of grains, and all medicinal shrubs will wither entirely, come to destruction and extinction unable to continue existing. This is why I say that all formations are impermanent. And he goes on to talk about, it just it feels so prophetic to read it in these times. He says, together this great earth will burn down and be destroyed. Not even an ash remaining. It's just like burning ghee, like butter, that burns, gets completely exhausted. He's talking about these fires and burning. And remember discovering this sutta actually right in the middle of the Alameda fire um, that happened in Southern Oregon. Those of you who are maybe in this area remember, again, in 2020, it was like apocalyptic year. In September, we had a fire start just two miles from the temple where we were living. And then very intense winds, apocalyptic winds that carried the, the fire up through many of the surrounding towns near Ashland. 
I remember reading this, and the smoke outside was like purple air quality, right? You couldn't go outside. It was so hazardous and so, so just uh, very, it was terrifying and so difficult for so many. And I read this, and I thought, the Buddha, no. <laughs> What's that? It's all going to burn? So this huge uh, shift, we're in this big extinction of species, climate change. And at the face of this kind of scale of change, the magnitude of what's happening, we can't even understand it. Have you noticed that? I mean, of course we have the whole denial thing. Right? It can't be happening. It's too big. We don't understand it. And even like, I mean, I think about climate change all the time, and I'm living in woods where I'm watching the, the trees die. But because we had a wet spring, wet winter and spring, and the grasses are growing down in Oregon, all the, the lakes are full for the first time in many years. And I watch my mind think, oh, it's okay now. It's going to be okay. That kind of collapse that we do in the face of this, we don't know how to hold it. Of course, we go through the cycles of anger, the forgetting again, resistance. So change on a big level. Then there's the middle level of impermanence, which is just really coming face to face with our own mortality. Isn't it kind of a surprise when you look in the mirror? <laughs> oh my gosh, okay, gray hairs now. And wrinkles, who's that? Like, oh, I look tired. Right? Is, is there a kind of shock <laughs> and dismay? <laughs> and I'm told it just gets worse. <laughs> not getting any better here. You're trying to fight that current. But it's so humbling, isn't it, to be in a human body that is actually going towards its own, right, its own demise. If we're lucky, we get to live in an aging body and experience all the ways that our parts stop working and the illnesses that we're subject to and caring for those around us. This is the human condition, aging, illness, death. This poem, I actually heard Mark teach this poem. This is called Weathering by Fleur Adcock. Just a part of it, she's a New Zealand poet. And she says, My hair will turn, turn gray in any case. My nails chip and flake, my waist thicken. And the years work all their usual changes. If my face is to be weather-beaten, that's little enough lost. A fair bargain for a year among lakes and fells, when simply to look out of my window at the high pass makes me indifferent to mirrors and to what my soul may wear over its new complexion. So nature teaching us to hold some steadiness, some equanimity in the face of our own mortality, the humility of being human. And then the third level of impermanence, this is my favorite probably, is this very subtle level. Like just this momentary, just, whoa, change, 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 right? Have you seen that, the subtlety of the breath? The subtlety of the changes, even as I'm talking right now, the tonality is changing. Right? 
the way that the wind is moving the leaves in the tree. It's like flickering. The wind moving through the grasses. So, it's so tiny, it's so subtle, it's so brief. Everything is trembling. And again, this can be very disorienting when we see it, but it can also be a really big moment in practice. So I had this, I was doing walking meditation on a three-month retreat in the gardens at IMS in Massachusetts. And that time of year in the fall, there's so many beautiful fragrant flowers in the garden, of course. I'm a greed type, so I always go to the most beautiful place to do walking meditation. And they have these big fat bumblebees in the gardens there. And I remember kind of shirking my walking. I didn't love the back and forth at that time. I was like, I'm just going to watch the bee. This bee was rolling around in this flower. And I had this moment of just like, first, just watching the bee and loving it, and kind of adorable, you know, it's all fuzzy and fat. And then the world changed, and everything became completely pixelated. All it was was just these freeze frames of the bee's wings moving like that, right? Like a hummingbird, sort of like you could, I could see the breakdown of all those different movements. And the whole world was that. All it is was just all these like pixels of change all the time. So powerful. In, in seeing that, there's something really deep in the mind that could relax. Oh, that's all that it is. That's all this whole big drama is happening. <laughs> you know, we make these big dramas out of our lives. So all of it is just pixels. And things changing so fast. So seeing impermanence not only leads to fear, it leads to deep joy and awe and amazement. Nature shows us this. It's all it is. <laughs> the turkey is <laughs> There's a lot of joy this afternoon practicing with you outside and hearing from you, this exuberance, this sense of like, wow, here we are together. So just a word on the second characteristic. We've gone deep into impermanence. We're going to go deep on anatta or not self tomorrow. But dukkha, this unreliability, we're just going to talk a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> we don't love that one, right? Stress. Trungpa Rinpoche called this, this truth the genuine heart of sadness. I love that phrase. That in our practice, when we start to see more of this unreliability, this heartbreak, letting our heart break, and really becoming intimate with this genuine sadness, there's nobility in that, right? Often when we think, we feel we're struggling somehow, we're overcome with sad, sadness, grief, despair, we think we're doing something wrong in the practice. Right? Because our culture tells us if we're happy, we're successful, and if we're sad, we're a failure. But this truth of dukkha, this genuine heart of sadness, it's the path. We have to feel it. We have to feel all the layers of it. We have to let ourselves bow to that heartbreak. Sometimes when we're really overwhelmed or overcome by the phobias, the panic, the loss, 
we can set up this kind of natural defensiveness. The psychologist Bruce Tiff calls this a fundamental aggression towards reality. Like, no, I'm okay, right? I don't want to suffer. And then like push through. And instead, what this practice does, what nature is calling us to all the time, is how do we open? How do we let those veils, those defenses, very gently drop so we can say yes to this life? And find a way to rest in the free fall. My Tibetan teacher, Mingir Rinpoche, he says, like waves on the ocean, all things are impermanent. I will accept whatever happens and make it my friend. And I think this is what Ajahn Chah is talking about, that we get in touch with this very deep kind of stress. It's kind of, it's called Sankara Dukkha. And some of you, we talked about it today, this kind of, it's like this very subtle rub. Everything seems to be going great, right? It's amazing here. The birds, we're here together. It's all good. But underneath, there's like, just something quite, not quite right. I'm a little chilly. I'm a little bored. This is going a little long. Restless. Sleepy. What's next? That like very subtle rub is such a doorway into understanding the truth of being alive. That we're not going to be able to strategize our way out of that. So again, it's coming into alignment, seeing all the pixels, the bees' wings, understanding that friction, and then finding a way to accompany ourselves through that. How do we let that break our hearts into compassion? A deeper kind of understanding of the human condition, especially the times we're in now, and respond with a deep resonance of the heart, a quivering of the heart that doesn't turn away, that doesn't deny, that can accompany the sorrow, and respond also from a steady kind of equanimity that doesn't condone these actions and these choices the human race is making, but knows how to stay steady and do what we can. Right? Whether that's just accompanying someone through the night or giving our time and energy and resources to what we care about. We're spending a lot of time on the river, right? learning about still flowing water, finding movement in the stillness. It's going to look differently for each of us. And when we're responding from a place of compassion and care and equanimity, we have so much creativity available for us. It's unexpected how we might respond. We can't plan that. So as Ajahn Chah says, we just be with the experience. Contemplate clearly, and the grasping will gradually become exhausted. So Kirsten last night began her talk with this quote by the Zen master Dogen. So I'm going to offer you this again. 
To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. And that translation, we're being actualized by myriad things, we're waking up to the truth of us being myriad things. Another translation is, is to become intimate with all things. To make it all our friend. Each moment, each mind state, each mercurial being. So how is that for a frame of practice that we're coming into a deep kind of intimacy of falling in love with? The whole path is about that rapprochement, right? The coming closer, the befriending. Cultivating a heart that's strong and loving and true in alignment with the truth of things. So let's just settle for a while. You can let the words drop away and just feel the body, the heart, the temperature, listening to all the sounds around us. Once I had so much I wanted to accomplish. Now all I know is that I want to get closer to it, to the rocky slope, the orange petals of the nasturtium adorning the fence, the wind's sudden breath. Close enough that I can almost feel at night the slight pressure of the stars against my skin. Isn't this what the mystics meant when they spoke of forsaking the world? not to turn our backs to it, only to its elaborate plots in favor of the pine's long shadow and the slow song of the grass. Thank you for your kind attention. We just got a little bit of time to stretch and um, yeah, walk if you like.
And maybe we can ring a bell. We'll start the evening session at 8.50. So that's in 15 minutes. Is there a bell ringer for that one? Thank you so much. We'll do Mata if you'd like to stay and make sure you're bundled up and warm. We're doing it outside. So we'll meet right back here in 15. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.